welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Nick here with Percy. Hello. And Todd. Howdy. And today we are going to be talking about ageism and particularly how it intersects with sexism in our culture, particularly in theater, which is the industry that we all belong to, through a survey of writing about the field from academics and actors and other artists' testimony and so on and so forth. We're also going to be talking about Brindlewood Bay and the radical choice that makes to feature elderly women in a medium that is often chock full of young, valiant power fantasies and what interesting ideas and experiences that can offer. So to start out, just to make sure we're all kind of operating on the same page, we should make sure that we all have the same understanding of ageism. Um, So what is ageism? Uh, fundamentally, it's discrimination against a person based on their age, or I would say actually their perceived age, which we'll get to a little bit later, but that's often much more important than their biological age. And usually this is a bias against older people. Um, We'll talk about this a little bit more in the rest of the podcast, but that's usually how ageism manifests in, I would say, Western, certainly Anglophone culture, Um, but it can sometimes manifest as bias against young people as well. I've certainly seen that happen. Uh, We're also in this moment particularly interested in, like I said, the intersection of ageism and sexism, which means we're going to be looking at how this culture of ageism and misogyny affects older women specifically. So where does this come from? We don't need to look much further than fairy tales to see the origins of a number of troubling tropes about older women. In Sylvia Henneberg's Moms Do Badly But Grandmas Do Worse, the nexus of sexism and ageism in children's literature, which like, wow, what a title. Anyway, um, (laughs) older women in fairy tales are relegated to one of the following three roles. One, the selfish, evil, or vain crone. Two, self-sacrificial women saviors, think your fairy godmother, um, and three, ineffectual or demented grannies. If you think back to any Disney film, fairy tale, or novel, how many of them feature older women? If they did feature an older woman, were they central to the plot? If they were central to the plot, were they the protagonists? Very often, the answers to those things are like no, no, and no. And like most importantly, these characters are typically either marginalized or defined by their relationships to other often male characters. They don't often get to have a large amount of agency or plot relevance themselves. Um, When they do, it is either to be a sneering villain or to offer the hero something in their moment of need um, or to just be like someone in the background that leads this person to go on their quest. And even outside of like more modern shows like Murder, She Wrote or The Golden Girls, which I know don't sound modern to us now, but like, you know, within the idea of modernity, um, startlingly few of our cultural touchstones feature older women as protagonists, except like maybe the most recent 80 for Brady, which I have not seen yet because of ageism. And I don't even know what it is because I'm so ageist. Um, (laughs) It's a movie about a bunch of older women who are like really excited to meet Tom Brady and go to the Super Bowl. Good for them. But I also feel like the only other times we might see, like I can't think of an example at this moment, but I also think a lot of times 
people will do shows that have like that feature like older characters or older women characters but it's like as a bit you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like it's a joke that it's like oh it's this motorcycle gang but it's grandma's you know which is mm-hmm. <laughs> which is maybe not progressive <laughs> yeah I, I was gonna say i feel like in some ways golden girls maybe actually started a little bit as that and then just I, I don't know Golden Girls well, so like I don't want to speak out of turn. But does the premise of it feels like, aha, what if, you know, a sitcom, but old ladies. But then it was, you know, very well written. Like they treated the characters well and like, you know, fleshed them out as full people. But yeah, mm. the like And the lead writer on that is a woman who like I think it was important to her um to feature uh, actors that were getting phased out of other shows, but still had a lot of potential. And I think like that's what you see in The Golden Girls and in Murder, She Wrote. Like one of the things that um, Angela Lansbury was doing was like making sure that older, um, both men and women actors were able to like keep up their pensions and like get enough union hours for SAG or whatever um, to like make sure that they could survive because so often um, particularly when you're an older actor there just like aren't roles for you Um, and like that's why we have all of those wonderful guest star features on Murder She Wrote well and I like yeah to give an example of a way in which it is used as like a bit I'm also thinking about um one a, a recent episode of RuPaul's Drag Race in this current season. I don't know if either of you watch Drag Race, but there is a challenge where the queens had to form old lady girl groups. So they had to dress up as older women and do like songs about being old. And it was just like 45 minutes of like ageist jokes. And I was Ugh. like, Ooh. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it's just like, is it, it? Yeah. Like I think often we only think about age or portray older women as a costume or a, or as a bit as opposed to like actually being interested in like what are the inner lives of these people. This is circling back a little bit, but I'm just curious about the Sylvia Henneberg, which I didn't have a chance to to dig into. But mm-hmm. Todd, you said that the like fairy godmother figure kind of falls into like self-sacrificial women saviors. That's the... Yeah. Okay. Um, so she viewed them, it's not just fairy godmothers, but I feel like that's the easiest touchstone for people. But it's uh-huh. usually like a woman who sets aside any, like we don't even understand what any of her needs and wants would be um, gotcha. in the story. We just know that like she is going to do things for the protagonist um, and only for the protagonist's benefit. So like in Cinderella, um, like, what do we know about the fairy godmother? Literally nothing. nothing. We know yeah, that yeah. she is here to, like, provide goods and services to Cinderella so that she can have a happily ever after. And we never have a question of, like, what's the fairy godmother's happily ever after? Like, what's her version of a good ending? Totally. Yeah, yeah. I think I was getting hung up on the self-sacrificial part, but it's actually, like, like it's, it, yeah. Be, well, and because I think of, I think there's a sort of, a, a certain strand of feminism that says not totally incorrectly that like pre-modern the pre-modern world had a different relationship to femininity and like sees the sort of witch figure as a very powerful figure but you're absolutely right often in a narrative even if it's not self-sacrificial you, there's no like interiority to that power well in it 
yeah and i think even though even if that figure is venerated like i'm thinking about the baba yaga like even if Mm -hmm. that figure is like venerated in some way or is thought to be really cool and powerful there is also like an assumption that it is subversive in some way or like that she is dangerous so there is some kind of like any sense of interiority is sort of like read to be a bad thing (laughs) or like um yeah well and function and for me like the like I don't know the thing that clicked when Todd was just talking is like oh right and also it like she's defined by her function in the narrative yeah <laughs> you know like she's she's not a person she's even uh, one who's not viewed as menacing is only viewed as like useful um, yeah it's yeah. like oh you know she yeah she advances the plot by poisoning the apple or whatever yeah 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 cool thank you that was I was like getting I was tripping over that because I was like this Fairy Godmother doesn't like sacrifice <laughs> herself. She just turns a pumpkin into things, but but she then throws herself no in front needs, of the wants... pumpkin. What? Then throws herself in front of the pumpkin carriage. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but yes, that, that's super helpful. So thank you for that. Um, so now that we sort of established um, sort of what stories and narratives tend to be told about older women in particular. Um, and like, what are these concepts that we're thinking about? I think it's also useful to ask, how do ageism and sexism appear in theater? Um, a big one that I see a lot of discussion of on Twitter.com and I'm sure other places um, is that there is sort of a preference in terms of like grant funding and opportunities and things like that for quote unquote emerging artists and for big names and not very much support for mid-career artists. So either you make it, you get an opportunity as a quote unquote emerging artist and make it really big and then everyone is interested in your work throughout your career or you know you make it to mid-career and then you kind of stall out and there are no you know 30 under 30 opportunities for you or early career artist submission opportunities or things like that and i think this is one reason that we see so many theater artists i mean also just the money um but i was gonna say why so many like mid i feel like i see a lot of playwrights kind of springboard playwriting into tv writing um, these days, not only because it's more lucrative, but because there are some opportunities for an emerging writer. But like you said, Percy, there isn't as much opportunity for somebody who's not quite emerging anymore, but also isn't yet, you know, Sarah Rule or I don't know. I'm trying to think of somebody even older who's not horrible. Um, Paula Vogel. Paula Vogel. Paula, Paula Vogel. Thank you. Yes, excellent example. My, for some reason, my brain just swung in the opposite direction of this episode and was like, "David Mamet, Neil LeBute." No. <laughs> um, well, and I also yeah. think there's like, this is a potentially use. Well, no, it, it's not potentially. It is a useless sort of tangent, but it also I think maps onto the way that like in theater, we tend to rely on marketing plays not by what the play is about and what it's doing, but like this is an exciting world premiere or like this is an exciting script by an emerging writer. Like I think that our industry for whatever reason wants to latch on to people and market the people as opposed to like, here's this cool, here's this cool play by a mid-career playwright that we think is a great play, you know? Well, and I think, I, I think I actually, I think there's something to be said for marketing, maybe not marketing people, but like introducing an audience to a writer but like the problem then is that the narrative 
theaters always seem to want the narrative to be either like, this person is a world-class playwright that you've probably seen the name somewhere before and can't remember where, or to be like, this is a like brand new person that we have discovered and we're bringing you this like fresh talent, um, which raises also the question of like who determines what emerging means because usually it's just code for like young but if you you know if you've been writing if you're 40 years old and you've been writing plays for 20 years but only in the last three years have you been sort of doing it deliberately enough and sending them to places and getting stuff produced are you emerging Mm -hmm. you know i would say yes in a professional sense but that's often uh, not what that means. <laughs> but that's but that's generally that person would not be eligible for a lot of, you know, emerging is usually code for either within X years of some kind of higher education, which is a whole other problem, um, or just literally means like under 35. Well, and I think we're seeing the fraughtness of that term emerging uh, sort of coming to a head right now because of the pandemic, because like. There was a two plus year hold on a lot of things. And now a bunch of people who sort of fall outside of what we traditionally think of as quote unquote emerging are like, oh, well, like, <laughs> like I lost, like I lost several years of opportunities. Um, so what, so what do I do? Um, but yeah, which is, which is all to say, you know, there are very few opportunities for mid-career or I don't want to say late career because that feels like... <laughs> I don't know. I don't think anybody uses that as like a term. But yeah, once you are out of the like emerging phase of your career, there are very few opportunities if you did not sort of get chosen by um, an institution when you were quote unquote emerging. Mm -hmm. Well, shifting gears towards like actors and performers, um, particularly when we're looking at women um, like there is this pervasive bias against older women in our media. And as far as female roles in theater go, often the options are like an ingenue, a mother, or, and then there's a big gap, like very few and far between batty old ladies on stage, like the, the woman in the humans, um, who like is usually a, a featured role by an older actor who hasn't been in work for a while because they just don't write roles for women in their like 50s and 60s well there's also like our theater practices make it sort of inhospitable in some ways for older people and i think there becomes like a cycle of like oh there are no older actors who are working so we don't have to write roles for them but then there are no roles for them so like why would they so they you know do other things with their time um but there's like very long hours there's inflexible schedules the process of like auditioning is exhausting and I'm pretty ableist in a lot of ways. Um, like in my anecdotal experience, at least in like the DC theater community, there is like one particular woman who is cast in all of the like old lady roles. Um, and like, she's amazing. She's like very cool and very talented, but also like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to assume what she does or doesn't feel but it it definitely is weird that like there's just like one person who is reliably like the old lady character. Um, well, and it's and it's weird that there's so few old lady characters in a city the size of DC that one person can play all of them. 
Yeah. You know, like in a season. <laughs> and I mean, I, I'm like exaggerating a tiny bit, but there's definitely I mean, like, like it is. Yeah. It's, it's like a noticeable thing that this is like the person that you, that you think of. Um, and another sort of practical consideration of the way that this sort of manifests, particularly intersecting with sexism in theater is that like, there is no childcare support in our industry by and large. And a lot of women, um, have to stop working, um, because they have children, uh, or because they have to take care of a relative or a loved one. Um, and also like there are fewer roles available, so there's not as much incentive to stay in the industry. Like there's a lot of, um, industry practices that sort of make it harder for people to persist. Yeah. One of the things I found when doing research for this episode that was so striking is the kind of vicious cycle that gets triggered here where it's like this is actually particularly noticeable in two artist couples or well, two artist like hetero couples of like if you are a man and a woman and both of you are actors and you have a kid, somebody like needs to take care of the child and it becomes this vicious self-reinforcing thing of like, well, the, there's fewer roles for a woman in, say, her early 40s than a man in his early 40s. So the man is probably, you know, assuming all else equal, is probably getting more work, which means it makes more sense for the woman to take time off, which means that she's out of the field, which means that she's less like likely to book a role, which means that she has more time to like it becomes this self-perpetuating thing because of that fundamental lack of opportunity and lack of interest in women above the age of like 35. Well, and what I thought was super fascinating in the article um, by Jane Raceborough, uh, Reduced to Curtain Twitchers, Age Ageism and the Careers of Four Women Actors, um, was that like in this survey of women in the field, they found that like women actors um, start to feel the impact of this reduction in like job offers um, as they reach or are perceived to look 40 years old, whether that's how old they are or not is like immaterial and that their male counterparts, on the other hand, are on an upward trajectory in terms of earning potential as actors into their 50s, whereas like women cap out usually in terms of the earning potential for their career at about 34, which like in my head, I understand that. But like seeing those numbers is like gross and bad, as you know? a th- as a 31-year-old, it's giving me some really strong feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's alarming to see the data laid out like that in a way that's just like, oh, yeah, very frankly, like, women stop getting jobs around, like, 34, 35. And it just continues to go downwards, whereas, like, men can continue to work up until their 50s with ease. The, yeah, there's something... Um... I think it's in the Jane Raysboro article where somebody talks about the ways that men and women are perceived to age differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like as men age, they're perceived as more characterful, um, you mm-hmm. know, like they're they're perceived as more nuanced and like uh, complex. And for women, it's the opposite. Like young, only young women are not only, but like young women are perceived often as more like complex and nuanced in their performances, in their sort of presentations than old women, which I think probably says more about the perceiver 
than the perceived. Oh, yeah. Well, and like looking at um, just the way that we let like men versus women age with grace um, in even in like Hollywood, like Harrison Ford is allowed to look like Harrison Ford and will be allowed to look like Harrison Ford for the rest of his life. And nobody gives a damn about it. But like Carrie Fisher growing older than she was when she played Princess Leia was like an affront both to her career and Hollywood um, in a way that's alarming and like fucked up that we we don't allow people, particularly women, to be older. <laughs> mm-hmm. We don't allow women to be older and actually we insist on them being very young. Um, this is one of the things that uh, uh, this statistical analysis by Robert Fleck and Andrew Hansen notes. Uh, they analyzed a century's worth of uh, U.S.-based film roles, pretty much, looking at the like gender breakdown, the age breakdown, et cetera, et cetera. And the persistent truth that has actually gotten worse over time um, over the last century or so, which boggled my mind, is that the bias is toward quite young women and middle-aged men, which is something that I I feel like I knew in terms of, you know, it's almost a trope of like, why does this rom-com star a 23-year-old actress and a 42-year-old man? But that's actually persistently true across like almost all types of film for a century is like Hollywood particularly wants to produce films with women between the ages of like 18 and 30 and men over between the ages of like 40 and 60. Not maybe not even 60, like 40 to 50. And if you don't fall into either of those demographics, there's just not as much work to be had. And I think frequently, like I'm thinking about the tendency I'm thinking specifically, I think this is a big thing in Shakespeare, but like there are these like big juicy roles for men and occasionally a company will be like, I will, we will cast a woman as Timon of Athens or like we will cast a woman and rename her Prospera instead of Prospero. But it's like, those aren't stories about older women's experiences. They are a role written as a man being played by a woman to make a point, but it's not the same thing as actually representing like a juicy part for a woman. Mm-hmm. Also, the problem with the current production of 1776. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> let's not divert into 1776 because I have opinions. Anyway, um, <laughs> in art, uh, this tends to lead to a noticeable lack of major older female figures on stage, on screen, and even in games. Uh, even the ones who exist are often defined by others' ageist expectations. When it's a grandmother, it's the younger male writer's grandmother. Uh, that he's conjuring up, um, not what a 65-year-old woman is like now. So, like, we're often looking in this, like, retrospective, like, what was my grandmother like at that age? Is that equivalent to what, you know, a a 70, 80, 90-year-old is like now, Um, even if it's very different? Um, There were some questions raised in Staging Age, um, a Shakespearean essay uh, about performing female age in Shakespeare's plays by Janet Hill and Valerie Barnes Lipscomb. Um, and they asked the question, like, do older women's lives naturally have less drama in them? Which, like, 
The clear answer is no, but culturally we assume that there must be because we relegate often through like these typified ideas of what femininity is and aging is into these roles of like caregivers, whether that's for their children, their elders, etc. Um, and like why none of Shakespeare's characters are like caregivers, like the, the protagonists. So like, why do we assume that older women must be in this? And also like, why can't caregiving be a protagonist's role and like thing that they're doing? You could say that Prospero is a caregiver in some ways. He's not That's a very true. good one though. <laughs> he's not a very good one. It's, he's totally not a very good one. <laughs> And well, he's and got, like got a the lot of drama, problems, the drama of what Prospero is doing is not raising his daughter. It's, it's like he was enacting from... his revenges yeah. against the people who wronged him in the past. I I think there's a solid. You know what? Never mind. We're not going to go down the Tempest rabbit hole. <laughs> no seventeen seventy six. No Tempest. Yeah, yeah. We just we just got Nick's anything written before two thousand twelve. Um, <laughs> I don't know when 1776 was written, so I'm being conservative. Oh, a while ago. You're good. Yes, You're fine. It's longer old. than that. Anyway, yeah. That's not, um, the point. <laughs> not the point. Becca is fuming uh, while listening to this. But um, anyway, uh, one of the things that's very interesting is that like women performers are often coming into the height of their powers just as there are no more roles for them. Um, a quote from Sinead Cusack in Performing Female Age in Shakespeare's Plays is... I could play Juliet now in late middle age, and I certainly couldn't play her when I played her, you know, when I was 24 and could not play the complexity of that woman. I love Nick. this quote. Mm -hmm. I just want to say, uh, like, I, I just love the point that, like, this is the weird double edge of that same young women and middle aged men thing is like. And, and, you know, I actually I think there should be great roles that 24 year olds can play. You know, I'm not trying to say that it should be the opposite of this, but it is like, oh, yeah, not only is it, uh, you know, are, are there all these problems of ageism in this, but it's also like you don't get to do your best work because you're expected to do all your best work before everybody else is expected to have finished learning their craft. I also think like this gets into an interesting question about believability and Juliet's a bad example because like canonically Juliet, like the point of Romeo and Juliet is that they're in their like teens. But like, I think often there is an assumption that a woman who is older or who we perceive to be older is not believable as like a love interest. And there are, I think, plenty of stories where like you could cast someone who's a little bit older than the character is as written and it would be fine. Like we do it in TV all the time. Um if Ben Platt can play Dear can play Evan Hansen in the film Dear Evan Hansen, like we can cast a woman who is older um, in, you know, the ingenue role and it would be fine. Um, but I think there is like more leeway given to men than women in this specific regard of like who can we quote unquote believe as the protagonist. Mm hmm. So, like, what few roles there are for older women tend to lead into stereotype and supporting roles. Um, as we were saying before, even with, like, the fairy tales, we're looking at abuelas, curtain twitchers, um, people who rarely have any interiority or power. Um, they contrast with men who are often perceived to get more characterful as they age, as Nick was saying earlier. 
Um, another stereotype that I have noticed a lot and that I think our particular game at Brindlewood Bay does a good job of like addressing directly is that there is like a tendency for stories about older characters to be really sexless. Um, mm-hmm. Like, or, you know, like you'll see it in TV all the time of like people will make a joke about an older person like having a sex life and everyone is like, ew, gross. And it's like, well, <laughs> why is that gr- like what what is gross about that exactly? Um, but, you know, we have Eddie Rue who has many gentleman callers and is not like ashamed of that. And I think one intervention Brindlewood Bay makes, and we'll get into this later as well, is that like, no, you are encouraged to like understand that these are people with romantic lives and sex lives. And that is not like weird or bad or gross. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think there's something about how like quote unquote genre stories, which is what you see a lot in games, um, tend to use Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, which is a very individualistic framework it's about one individual person but i also think women like stories about women tend to emphasize community and group relationships more than individual stories which is just sort of incompatible with that story framework that we're most familiar with i don't necessarily have a broader point but i think that's an interesting thing to notice and perhaps one reason why it's easier to just not tell stories about older women (laughs) And it's bizarre that these games so often do lean into Joseph Campbell, that shithead, given that um, (laughs) – I don't like Joseph Campbell. Um, That's fair. uh, But I was going to say given that they are group activities. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. like it's it's wild how many – I feel like D&D games, for example – yeah, I'm thinking of actual plays, but also games I've like played it and so on is like it's like five intersecting heroes journeys. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like everybody's on their own hero's journey and they just happen to be in the same room. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like That's bizarre. Which is like what we talked about in season one with the problem of having like five Batman on your. Yes. <laughs> at your table. Yeah. Just like I have a dark and scary past and I must come to find justice for myself. And not like, how can we work together in order to solve each other's problems? Yeah. Um, And just to give, I think, maybe one concrete example of like an older woman role that I think exemplifies particularly the quote unquote like baddie older lady sort of trope. I did a production of Ruth and Augustus Getz's The Heiress, which is adapted from a Henry James novel. It's about this like very shy young protagonist who gets conned by, uh, you know, a man after like you know she's very shy and nobody wants to marry her and then some guy is like i'll marry you and uh, then betrays her um and there's a character named lavinia pennyman who's her like nurse or like caretaker or like is like responsible for like her chaperone that's the word um but is very much like very frivolous and very much a romantic and very silly and like very much like played for laughs the entire time this very sort of naive woman and you know all of her story is about this the protagonist not about you know we don't actually learn anything about her really unless it's to like make a point or give advice to um the protagonist of the story the sort of note that we want to close on is thinking about what sort of intervention is Brindlewood Bay making? How is it addressing or circumventing these pitfalls in its choice to sort of center the stories of uh, elderly women? Um, I wanted to start by just noting some of the things that Jason Cordova says in the design notes 
uh, in the handbook. Um, he says, quote, I had several design goals for Brindlewood Bay and chief among them was that I wanted to make a game where you played elderly women. Importantly, I wanted to make a game about elderly women who are whole characters and not caricatures. In other media, elderly women are frequently relegated to the role of support characters or comic relief. And I wanted to make a game where they were the central characters with rich, complex lives. End quote. So that sort of gets at why he's making the choice that he's making. It's coming really specifically out of an effort to, you know, address this gap, at least in in gaming. Like so often in these games, um, in TTRPGs in general, which like we have noted, come from the wargaming tradition, like so often they are power fantasies, regardless of what game you're playing. So like even just looking at what we've played, like D&D, Apocalypse World, Paranoia, Blades in the Dark, Kids on Bikes, with the exception of like Bluebeard's Bride and Brindlewood Bay, two games that specifically focus on women, none of our other characters have been older women. Just like full stop. And I don't think that that's something that like just we um, at Dungeons and Drama Nerd Circle have. Like if you look at most actual plays, like you're not going to find a lot of like older women main characters. Um, and so I think that what is really cool about this game is that it forces us um Eh, maybe forces is too strong of a word. It encourages us to like look through um, the the eyes of these older women and like examine them um, as people who who had full lives and still have things to do. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy is that like yeah, you're entering like a new phase of your life in Brindlewood Bay. You had a partner, you had kids. Um, you are now an empty nester and like entering um, a new phase of your retirement. And that involves like solving murder mysteries with your best friends. Um, and I think that that's really lovely and tells us the story of community and care. I think it's really important that like the way these women uh, clear conditions is by like having emotional moments of care for one another, doing things that we don't traditionally see as um, like necessarily super meaningful, um, but having like a cup of tea with a friend or like knitting while you pass the time in front of a fireplace. Like, I think that that's really important. And I really think it's cool that the crown moves that Cordova um, has in the piece I think that they allow you and force you um, to like avoid often literally certain doom. Um, like in order to do that, you need to flesh out your character. You need to play out a scene um, where like you are reminded of a moment that you were maybe an imperfect lover or an imperfect mother um, to give these women like depth and gravitas. Uh, and I think that's fascinating that like the way that you regain agency is by making your character more complex. The thing that I think is fascinating about the way that Cordova talks about this in the book has to do with a broader, like I think part of the reason in actual play that we don't necessarily see a lot of older women characters is because they're just like, probably aren't that many older women who are producing tabletop game shows in their spare time. Like, I don't know, um, but I suspect that that's the case. And I think there is an assumption in these games, or at least there's a tendency to want to play characters who are in some way like you or to explore something about yourself or to have something to relate to in your character. But Jason Cordova talks really explicitly about like, 
hesitancy from people who are like, is it okay? Like, is it appropriative or like weird for me to play an older woman? You know, is it like, is that, is that okay? And he is sort of like, you know, don't worry about not doing a good job, like find joy in an experience that is not your own. Like, I don't think the goal of Brenda Wood Bay is to authoritatively represent the lived experiences of older women as accurately as possible. Like it's about playing a specific kind of kind of character. And he talks a lot about like finding levels of detachment between you and the character, particularly like he talks about and like as a trans person who is until recently felt weird about playing women characters for various reasons. He's like, you know, I understand feeling some apprehension, but also think of this not as like living as your character, but rather being in a writer's room on a TV show or finding some level of detachment between you and your character, which I think is interesting. I think that idea of the writer's room is really helpful, particularly for a home game. I do think it gets a little more complicated with um, with actual plays where you are sort of performing in the in the traditional sense. Um, but I also I'm only thinking now, you know, it's I'm thinking about age more than womanhood, if that's the right word in, in this context. But it's interesting to think of playing outside your experience specifically with regard to age in that, you know, it's not that it isn't your experience it's just that it hasn't been your experience yet yeah. <laughs> you know hope mm-hmm. hopefully god knock on wood god willing it will be yeah eventually mm-hmm. you know like it, you know it's a little bit different from playing outside your experience in terms of culture or race or gender you know is like you know i mean hopefully i will know what it's like to be 70 years old um i just can't until i'm there um, yeah. yeah. And I think there's like a need to be cognizant of not playing into like stereotype or, you know, letting your personal fear of what might happen as you age color the way that you play a particular character. But I also think, yeah, it's true that like this is an experience that you will eventually have and it is worth like it's not necessarily a bad thing to to do but i also i think the comparison to dnd is an interesting one because i think this is a game that is not about physical prowess but dnd is very much like even if you're playing like a spellcaster or whatever like your physical vitality your hit points are like the measure of how you're doing in the game um whereas brindlewood bay like it's conditions it's emotional it's not rooted in your you know physical body um which I think is sort of a key difference. Like, I think it's telling that in D&D, there are two separate character classes where you get abilities that stop you from aging, right? Well, and even the very idea of there being a kind of concrete vitality that you possess when you're young, that you don't when you're old, I think is complicated too, because like, yeah, yes, there are like biological, you know, the body goes through an aging process and there are things that 20-year-olds can do without thinking about it that I can't do now as a 31-year-old, at least not without thinking about it. But there's also, um, going back to the idea of actors and their like technique, many older actors report feeling much more 
aware of their bodies and like present in their bodies than they were when they were younger performers in part because they, you know, have to be a little bit more cognizant of it of their body in their daily life. So I think there's an interesting thing there too of like is it decline or is it just a different relationship to your body and to kind of bodily experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What could we how could we measure vitality in ways that aren't I can get punched in the face a bunch and still be more or less okay. Well, I mean, one of the stats in Brindlewood Bay literally is vitality. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Um, Fair. Although I'm trying to remember exactly how he uh, defines it. It's strength, dexterity, endurance, athleticism, or raw physicality. But it's that's one ability of many. And I think like it is sort of pushing back against the assumption that all old people are physically incapable and infirm and frail. Right, yeah. I mean, you can you can play a high vitality, you know, older woman in Brindlewood Bay. You know, you can play a 70-year-old marathon runner, which is a person who exists. Like, not a person. There are many 70-year-old <laughs> marathon runners. There can only be one. <laughs> Every year at the Boston Marathon, they fight each other. <laughs> anyway, I feel like that segues really well, Nick, into your sort of final point. Oh, yeah. So, something that we ran across in our research that I, th- I think is interesting and was a new way for me to think about this was actually aging as a performance and aging as uh, as a cultural narrative in the same ways. Because there are biological elements to aging, I think that we tend to assume that uh it is a sort of purely biological phenomenon. But what one theorist, Margaret Morganroth Gillette, uh, posits in her book Aged by Culture is that the whole idea of age as decline is actually a sort of cultural script that we have written for ourselves in ways that affect all of us as we age and that play into aging and all sorts of other you know, aging uh, misogyny, that very potent intersection that they have, aging and race, aging and ability, and that th- this whole idea of like, oh, as you decline, after you, you turn like 25, it's all downhill from there. That's something that we have told ourselves rather than something that it that has any actual basis in truth. Yes, like I said, a 70-year-old person and a 20-year-old person have different physical abilities, but they're but they're different. They're not necessarily like, yeah, the 20-year-old can do everything better. <laughs> I actually don't think that's true at all. I've met so many 70-year-olds who are so much more, again, particularly like cognizant and aware of things. Um, I mean, I literally just the other day in rehearsal was watching a woman who I don't know her age, but, you know, is... I would say, in middle age, helping a woman who's in her early 20s stretch and just like knowing so much more about how the the middle aged woman knowing so much more about how both of their bodies worked. Yeah, it points to a broader, I think, flattening of our understanding of physical ability, like in our culture that is um, could could do with could do with some nuance. Um, but that's sort of outside the scope of this conversation. <laughs> yeah. I'm also 
I'm being, uh, I wish I knew who said it in, in our research, in the, the papers we were looking at for this, there was someone who astutely pointed out that like, part of why we allow men to age with grace is we value men at any age, but particularly when they're older for their minds. But like women, we particularly value for their bodies. And so mm-hmm. when their bodies are no longer meeting like traditional beauty standards or whatever. Or when just, they're no longer able to have children. Right. Um, there's this like perceived loss of value culturally um, in this person. And so there's this question of like, why uh should we revere this person? But like women are just as valuable for their minds as men are. And that is dumb and like gross sexist thought. One other thing that I think is maybe worth naming as we sort of close is that like the sort of paradigm that we are talking about that is ageist and sexist in this way is a predominant, is like a white Western paradigm. Like there are, Mm -hmm. there is, but that also points to the fact that like, like a lot of indigenous cultures um, are like, like they venerate older women in their communities or venerate older people in general, like elders are really important. So, yeah. So I think it's also very much like a manifestation of the way that like white supremacy culture affects theater and media. But we're saying that like not every culture is like this. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, this is very much a Western white uh, construction. Yeah. But before that brings me into Foucault, we'll close the episode there. Um, You said before we get into Foucault? I mean, if you want to talk about biopolitics and necropolitics, let's get into it. I I don't remember that well enough. So you're welcome welcome to just talk for as long as you can about it. No, let's um, close the episode. And in fact, we'll just see you all uh, listeners next week for the continuation of Amicable Autumnal Abattoir, our current Brindlewood Bay mystery. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us, and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Thank you.